Well, church, uh, having just celebrated the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the starting of the church, uh, which is what the Spirit's arrival and indwelling at Pentecost initiated, it, it began the life of the church. And so as a result, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the church and specifically at, at what the scripture says about the church through the metaphors and the images that it uses to describe her. Now, the goal of this series is that through these images, we would grow in our understanding of who we are to be and how we are to live as the people of God in the world. My hope is that by revisiting these old and familiar images, we may have new and fresh imaginations for what they mean and for how they apply to our lives as individuals and as a community of faith. So this week we're beginning the series by looking at what may be the primary metaphor for the church and what may be the metaphor that best illustrates the hope of the gospel to the world. This week we're looking at the church as the bride of Christ. Now, though the scriptures never use the actual phrase, bride of Christ, the concept of God being married to his people is used a number of different ways all throughout the scriptures. We heard it in our Old Testament reading, in our New Testament reading, it's all throughout the Bible. And the prominence of this message, uh, of this image, is seen in the fact that the Bible both opens and closes with scenes of weddings. In Genesis chapter 2, immediately after God had made man and woman in his image, he brought them together and he joined them together in, one, in a marriage. This is how the story of God's salvation history opens. It's also how it ends. For in Revelation chapter 19, all the way at the end of the Bible, we have an image of another wedding. And we're told that at the end of time, what it will mean to be blessed is if you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. A few chapters later, with the very final words of Scripture, the church, described as a bride, in unison with the Spirit of God, is inviting the whole world to come. Come into this banquet. Come into this union. Marriage imagery opens and closes the story of God and His interaction with mankind in the world. And so this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes considering what the image of marriage and the the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ means for us and for the world. There's three aspects of this metaphor that I want to highlight. There certainly could be more, but, but this morning we're going to look at three, and those are this. That the image of marriage shows us that we are known by God. The image of marriage shows us that we are loved by God. And the image of marriage shows us that we are bound together as one with God forever. So this metaphor of the bride of Christ shows that we are known by God, loved by God, and bound together as one with God forever. Let's look at those briefly. First, the image of marriage and the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ shows us that we are known by God. Every human being wants to be known. If you were old enough to watch TV in the 1980s, you remember one of the greatest sitcoms ever made, Cheers. It's the story of a random group of friends and their life together in a bar. And the theme song from Cheers expressed the sentiment of desiring to be known perfectly. It went like this. May you win the world. 
any of you that are old enough to remember, uh, you're welcome for a walk down memory lane. Uh, but what they're basically saying is that life is hard and we want to be known in the midst of it. Everybody wants to feel known. In fact, according to the famous psychologist Abraham Maslow, everyone needs to be known. On Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs, the need to be known comes right after the most basic human needs of food and water and clothing and safe shelter. We all have a deep human need to be known. We cannot flourish without it. Now at Cheers, I think they settled for far too little in regards to being known. Because having someone know your name is one of the least intimate forms of being known that exists. We can know hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of people over the course of our life by name. Knowing someone's name barely counts as knowing them. It's the least intimate form of knowing someone. But in marriage... In marriage, God has given to us the most intimate form of being known that exists between two human beings. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, the act of a husband and a wife coming together in sexual union is described as them knowing one another. That is what it means to be known. The scriptures say that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him Cain. Later we read that Cain knew his wife. And she bore him Enoch. The sexual union that God has given to us in marriage is the most intimate form of knowing another person that exists on earth. And while many people who aren't married try to emulate that kind of intimacy and knowing with one another, it simply cannot exist in the same way outside of the bonds of the covenant of marriage that it exists inside of the bonds of the covenant of marriage. Because physical intimacy is only one piece of the intimate knowing of a spouse that takes place in marriage. There's also the emotional intimacy and the spiritual intimacy and the financial intimacy. And and on and on it goes for all of the categories of life. And those levels of intimacy simply cannot be replicated outside of the bonds of the covenant of marriage. Because if you haven't given yourself fully to Another in marriage, then you are withholding something of yourself from them, and hence you cannot be fully known by them. It's only in the covenant of marriage, when you have given yourself wholly and fully to the other, that you can be most deeply, most intimately, most fully known. I know Lindsay better than any other human being on the face of the earth knows her. She knows me more deeply than any other human being on the face of the earth knows me. In marriage, we are more fully and more completely known than in any other human relationship that exists. And yet, being known by another in marriage in this life is only a minuscule foretaste of what it is like to be known by God. And if you think about it, that only makes sense because the reality is, is that we barely even know ourselves. I mean, I mean, the narrative of the Western world right now seems to be one big, constant, confusing search for identity. A search to discover who we really are. We don't even know ourselves, really. How could we possibly know another infinitely complex person? This is part of the reason why Stanley Hauerwasser, a former ethics professor at Duke University, has said that we never really know whom we marry. 
We just think that we do. And so the primary problem then is learning to, uh, how to love and to care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? So even in the most intimate of human relationships, we are hardly known. And yet in your relationship with God, you are fully known. The scriptures affirm this profound reality over and over and over again. In Psalm 139, we are told, Oh God, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. And how does the Lord know us so fully? The psalmist continues, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you and I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God knows you Because he made you. With every stitch and knit, he formed you and fashioned you into the exact and unique person that you are. And his intricate knowledge of you didn't end at your creation. It continues through his constant preservation over your life. Psalm 56 says that the Lord has kept count of your sorrows. Put your tears in a bottle. Written them in a book. He's intimately aware of all that you have ever gone through. He knows every joy, every pain, every laugh, every tear. He pays such attention to you and knows you so completely that even the hairs of your head are numbered by him, Jesus tells us. My wife and I this year are coming up on 18 years of marriage. Anybody been married more than 18 years? I know at least a few of you. Who's been married here the longest? 30 years? 40 years? Okay. Well, I'm going to go right here. Uh, Bob and, and, and Stacy. How long have you been married? 35. Bobby, you know how many hairs of head, hairs are on your wife's head? No, but I do know how many are on that <laughs> <laughs> Those are easier to keep track of. But listen, you've been married 35 years and you don't know how many hairs are on the, your, your wife's head? God knows every follicle of hair on your head. He knows every mole, every freckle, every imperfection. He knows every emotion that you've ever experienced, every motivation that has ever driven you, every thought, every word that you've ever thought or said, or that you will ever think or say. In marriage, we're known more fully than in any other relationship that exists between human beings. But that pales in comparison to how intimately the Lord knows you. Because he knows you completely. Being known by another human being in marriage is profound, but it is only a minuscule foretaste. The tiniest sampling of what it is like to be known by God. That's the first point that the image of marriage and the metaphor of the church is the bride of Christ shows us that we are known by God. Point two is that the the image of marriage and the metaphor of the church is the bride of Christ shows us that we are loved by God. Equal to the need to be known is also the need to be loved. 
And in the same way that marriage allows us to be more fully known, so it also allows us to most fully experience another person's love. I mean, think for just a moment about the pledges of love that are made in a marriage. In a marriage ceremony, a person promises to faithfully honor, love, comfort, and keep their spouse in sickness and in health, forsaking all others as long as they both shall live. In a marriage ceremony, a person makes a solemn vow to have and to hold their spouse from that day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until they are parted by death. In a marriage ceremony, a person gives their spouse a ring as a symbol of their vow and pledges that with all that they are, and with all that they have, they will honor their spouse in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are incredible promises of love. There is no other time or place in all of our relationships or interactions with other people where this type of love is ever declared or pledged to another person. Marriage is unique in all of the institutions in the earth for where this type of full-hearted, no-holds-barred love is not only expressed but committed to another person. And yet, human marriage provides for us only the smallest glimpse into the depth and the full-hearted love that God has for His people. Human love is as great as Hollywood may make it out to appear and as great as anyone's actual experience of it may end up being. It still pales in comparison to the love that God has for his people. I proved this to my wife early in our marriage in an embarrassing and a shameful way. On the day that Lindsay and I got married, I made all of these pledges to love her and I made them sincerely with every intention of keeping them. But early in our marriage, while on a trip to Alaska, one night uh, we had gone out to try to see the northern lights uh, late at night. And so uh, as we stood in the pitch black dark looking up into the sky, we heard the deep, low growl of what we both feared was the bear that had been seen running through our camp earlier that day. After a moment of paralyzed fear, we both began to slowly walk backwards because you're not supposed to run from a bear. But after a horrifying moment or two, neither of us could take the terror anymore, and we both turned and ran as fast as we could back to the cabin. And to my great and lasting shame, I beat my wife back to the door. (laughs) You should boo me right now, okay? (laughs) To make matters worse, The next morning, we discovered that it was only a sled dog that was in its cage that had been growling at us. So I basically abandoned my wife and left her for dead out of fear of a caged puppy. I love my wife. But in a moment, facing the fear of death, I love myself more. And in one way or another, this will always be the shortcoming of human marriage. Because at the root of every human heart is the problem of self-love. All of our love, no matter how pure it feels, will always be tainted out of our love of self. But this is not so with God. God's love is different. God's love is greater. 
And we know that because God has not only pledged His love to us, but He has once and for all time demonstrated His love for us with absolutely no consideration for Himself. For when Jesus encountered the deep, low growl of our sin, He did not back away. He did not seek to preserve His own life. He didn't leave us behind in order to save His own skin. Instead, Jesus actually came into our lives in order to face the destroying beast of our sin head on. And upon the cross, he allowed it to tear him apart so that we could find refuge and safety. There is no greater love than this. Paul in Romans said that a human would scarcely die, even for a righteous person. We won't even die for someone who's worth dying for, if there was such a person. But God showed His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you, when you didn't even deserve it. While you were still His enemy, He died for you. This is how much God loves you. We heard it in our New Testament reading for today, that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. From the very beginning, the Lord has pledged to his people that he would love them with an everlasting love. And in Jesus, he proved that it was true. Being loved by another in marriage in this life is profound, but it is only the smallest glimpse of what it is like to be loved by God. That's the second point. Finally, point three is that the image of marriage and the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ shows us that we are bound together as one with God forever. In the very first marriage, when Eve was brought to Adam and Adam marveled at the beauty of his partner, we are told that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus affirms this reality um, of, of the one flesh union. And he expounds upon it a bit further, explaining that when a man and a wife are joined together in marriage, they are no longer two individual people, but instead are one new creation. Something new is formed when a man and a woman come together in the covenant of Christian marriage. And Jesus says that what God has joined together in marriage, man should not put asunder. It it should never be taken apart. This one flesh union is is one of the ultimate mysteries of marriage. This is a, a deeper and closer connection than any other connection that exists between human beings. Children are close to their parents, but they eventually move out of their parents' home. But we love our friends, and and those friendships can last a lifetime, but you don't usually share a bed uh, with them night after night, and they're often not the ones that's sitting by your bedside when you're dying. In marriage, we are given the most tightly bound together and enduring relationships that exist. Lindsay's and my life are so intricately woven together that it would be nearly impossible and incredibly destructive to tear them apart. We live together, eat together, sleep together, share all of our resources with one another. Half of each of our children are her. What belongs to me belongs to her. What belongs to her belongs to me. We are profoundly one. And yet, have you figured out the pattern for this yet? And yet, the oneness that any two humans experience in marriage provides only the faintest echo into what it means to be bound together forever as one with the Lord. 
I mean, think about it. Spouses can be physically separated from one another. When Lindsay and I go to work, we're apart from one another. She can go out to the West Coast and visit her family, and we're separated by great distances for extended times. Spouses can be emotionally separated from one another. We can get into disagreements where, where it feels like we're not just on different pages, but, but we're reading entirely different books than one another. In worst case scenarios, due to the hardness of heart, spouses can be torn apart and marriages can end in divorce, legally separating the one flesh union. And ultimately, every human marriage is guaranteed to end because one day you or your spouse will die. And you will be parted by death, ending the promised covenant. So even in the best earthly marriages, this union isn't perfect. But in Christ, when we are joined together with Him, we are bound together into a physical, spiritual, all-of-life union with one another, never to be separated again. All of the things that create distance in human marriages aren't a problem for our relationship with God. Physical distances can never separate us because God lives in us by His Holy Spirit. Emotional distances can never separate us because even in our unfaithfulness, Christ keeps coming after us. We may not always recognize His presence with us when we are too busy to notice Him or when we have our backs turned to Him chasing other pursuits, but He is always there. Beckoning to us, waiting for us to return. Not even death itself, which is the end of every other marriage, can end the union that God offers us with himself through Christ. Because when we believe in him, even when we die, yet shall we live. The Apostle Paul said it best in Romans chapter 8 when he wrote, For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Being bound together as one in marriage is profound. But it provides only the faintest echo of what it means to be bound together forever as one with the Lord. To be known, to be loved, and to be connected together forever. This is what the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ is images for us and it is good news for every single one of us whether you are married or not whether you are a Christian or not let me explain really briefly why if you're married this is good news because this metaphor shows you what your marriage is supposed to be it's what we heard in our New Testament reading from Ephesians this morning and so if you want your marriage to thrive model it after Jesus and the church Lay your lives down for one another as Christ laid down his life for the church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as the church submits to him. The Lord has shown us through this metaphor how marriage works best. So follow him in it. Let your love reflect his love. Let your commitment reflect his commitment. And your marriage will be blessed. If you're not married to another person in this life, this metaphor is still good news because it reminds you that you do not need to be. You do not need to be married in this life in order to be fulfilled because something far more profound, far more fulfilling, far truer, that is infinitely deeper in its connections, infinitely longer in its duration, infinitely more pleasurable in its joys, infinitely more secure in its commitments, 
Something immeasurably better in every way is available to you right now and for all of eternity. The primary marriage reason that earthly marriage even exists is to point us towards this more profound union that is available to us in the Lord. And the best marriage that's ever existed between human beings is only a minuscule foretaste, a tiny glimpse, and a distant echo of what is to come. Which is why one day marriage won't even exist anymore. Because we'll all be rapturously captivated by the love of the Lord and united with Him forever. That's where we're heading. So if you're single in this life, let the marriages around you remind you That you are the bride of Christ, known, beloved, held by Him forever. And that you lack no good thing in regards to those categories. So whether you're married or not, this is good news. And whether you're a Christian or not, this is good news too. Because in many ways, this metaphor communicates the message of the gospel to us. Which is what every heart ultimately needs to hear over and over again. Tim Keller tied these three ideas together beautifully in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, where he writes that to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. And it's what we need more than anything. What he's saying is that we need all three of these things in our lives. If we are loved but not known, that love isn't real. It's shallow. It's superficial. It it doesn't mean anything. On the other hand, if we are known but then not loved, that's devastating because it means we're we're being rejected for who we really are. It's, It's why we put up all kinds of facades in our lives to avoid that kind of pain, to protect us from that kind of rejection. But to be fully known and to be truly loved... And hence accepted and bound together forever. That is the love of God. It's what's offered to us through the hope of the gospel. That's why the metaphor of the bride of Christ is so profoundly powerful. If you are a Christian, this is true of you. You are known. You are loved. You are inseparably united with the Lord forever. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. One day you will celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate place of blessedness. And you will dwell in the presence of the love of God forever. For Christians, this is our great hope. But this metaphor of the bride of Christ is also powerful if you're not a Christian. Because it offers to you a proposal. A proposal that will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. To be known and to be loved and to be accepted forever. Most proposals made by a bridegroom involve him getting down onto one knee. But this proposal takes place by Jesus climbing up onto a tree. And it is from there that he shows you how much he knows you, your mess and all. And it is from there that he shows you how much he loves you even still. He's willing to die for you even though you don't deserve it. And from the cross, he speaks a word of invitation for you to come to him, come to be known, come to be loved, come to be united together forever with the only one who will ever truly know you and fully love you.
Will you accept his proposal? The metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ communicates a profound message to us all. You are known, you are loved, and in the church you are united together with Christ forever. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen.